Now, you always want to be, um, by God's grace, living out the um, the very things you're going to be preaching on. But I got to say, I was struggling last night after the end of the uh, the um, SEC championship to know that I was going to be preaching on contentment <laughs> this morning. If you would, if you have your Bibles, and we always encourage you to bring your own Bibles. Um, however, we do have uh, pew Bibles uh, there if you need them. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter four, verses ten through thirteen. Philippians four, ten through thirteen. Hear God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that You would give us strength uh, in our inner soul in order that we might, along with the Apostle Paul, learn the secret of being content in whatever situation uh, that we are in. Whether it be well-fed or hungry, whether it be in plenty or in want, we ask for grace to rejoice in You and be contented with Your gracious and good providence in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a poor woman who for breakfast only had a piece of bread and a cup of water. And how she exclaimed, What? All this and Christ too? And he also tells of an old Puritan minister who only had a single herring, which is a fish, and a few potatoes for his family's dinner. And he prayed, and his prayer before the meal was, Lord, we bless Thee that Thou hast ransacked sea and land to find food for us this day. Spurgeon remarked how easy it would have been for these people to turn their noses up at such a meal as many do at an even more sumptuous fare. But instead of turning their noses up, these impoverished people were thankful and were full of joy. This morning's sermon, as I've already mentioned, is about the principles of Christian contentment. Christian contentment is very different than what is normally considered contentment. The dictionary defines contentment as being satisfied, 
but it assumes that you're being satisfied in circumstances that are satisfactory. But what about when a person's circumstances are unsatisfactory? Can that person experience contentment? The Apostle Paul learned the secret of Christian contentment. He experienced it as a lifestyle. And the Apostle Paul would say that you too can experience Christian contentment regardless of your circumstances. But I can hear you right now because I was asking the same question. But, well, that's the Apostle Paul. And I'm not an apostle. But here's the good news. I'm sure it was not good news for Paul at the time. But learning the secret of Christian contentment did not come easy to Paul. In fact, I think there's evidence that uh, discontent was one of Paul's greatest sins before he became a Christian. And I think he went on to wrestle with it greatly, even as a Christian. Listen to Romans eight. I'm sorry, Romans seven, verses seven and eight. I believe this uh, here. Paul is speaking autobiographically. That um, Paul is telling us about his own experience here in verses seven and eight of Romans chapter seven. He says, "What then shall shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet." If the law said, you shall not covet, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I'll go further. Here's how I think that um, covetousness was so stirred up within the Apostle Paul. You remember, uh, as we uh, worked our way through the book of Acts, that uh, Paul was present when uh, Stephen was arrested and then how Stephen gave his defense in front of the whole uh, religious council by preaching through the Old Testament uh, in one sermon uh, back in the, uh, in, in the book of Acts, in Acts, Acts chapter 7. Basically started from uh, early in Israel's history, preached through the whole of the Old Testament in one sermon. It was a brilliant sermon. Not my preaching of that sermon, but his sermon um, in Acts chapter 7 was just brilliant. But here's the thing. Stephen was an unlearned man compared to those that he was speaking to. In fact, even before the sermon, Stephen had uh, confounded the leaders of the synagogue with his wisdom. Here's how the book of Acts described why he was arrested. It says, Stephen, uh, this is in, in uh, Acts chapter 6, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenes, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and from Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So Stephen is doing all these great works and he is there teaching about Jesus 
Well, the leaders of the synagogue said enough of this and they disputed with Him and they started a public argument. But then verse 10 says, they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. This synagogue, there were several synagogues in Jerusalem. This particular synagogue was where the apostle, where, where Paul, before he became a Christian, where he would worship. Uh, verse 9 uh, very purposefully identifies this synagogue. It was the synagogue of the freedmen. And it says that there were different people that worshipped there, and it says people from Sicilia and from Asia worshipped there. We know that Paul was originally from Tarshish in Asia Minor. So this would have been where the Apostle Paul went to synagogue, where he went to church. And Paul was one of the most educated men of his time. He studied directly under the, the teaching of Gamaliel. And so it stands to reason that he was one of these leaders that was disputing with Stephen, who was arguing with Stephen. Um and uh, was ended up being confounded by Stephen's brilliant and spirit-filled, spirit-empowered defense of the gospel. I believe this incident drove Paul to jealousy. That's why the book of Acts says when they dragged Stephen out of the city to stone him, that they laid the clothes at Paul's feet. And it very specifically says that. And I think what this was... Um, what this was signifying is that in the eyes of those who were stoning Stephen, that even though Paul seemed to lose the intellectual argument, they were vindicating him by laying these clothes at Paul's feet. And what happened immediately after that? At the end of chapter 7, beginning in Acts chapter 8. Well, what happened is Paul went on a murderous rampage, dragging off families off to prison, dragging other families off to be killed. And I believe this is what he means in Romans 7 when he says covetous, um, covetous desires were stirred up within him. It was, he was being motivated not by the glory of God to go, to go drag these families off to prison and, and off to their, and ultimately to their death, but rather he was being motivated by jealousy, seeing this unlearned Stephen so powerfully um, present uh, and defend the gospel. And I, I, I believe that um, Paul at that time desperately wanted to be like Stephen. And of course it was later then that he met the Lord Jesus on the uh, Damascus Road and was converted. But I, it, it seems to me, since Paul mentions in Romans chapter 7, specifically covetousness. Covetousness is, um, is the desiring of your heart of something that doesn't belong to you, that belongs to someone else. And um, I believe this was Paul's besetting sin. That's why he mentioned it in, in Romans chapter 7. I believe this was, this was a sin that he struggled with the most. And I think this is why Paul, 
here in Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 10 through 13, is so keen to point out that he's contented because he has learned the secret to Christian contentment. But it had been quite the spiritual battle for him to learn this. Have you learned the secret to Christian contentment? And I hope that you will honestly evaluate where you are this morning and move towards restful, biblical contentment in the Lord. So then this raises the question, so how do you know where you are in regard to contentment? How do you evaluate your contentedness in the Lord? Well, let's find out. First of all, Christian contentment begins with trusting in the Lord. It means that you are trusting that the Lord God is the sovereign God who holds your entire hand, your entire life in His hands. And He holds all your circumstances in His hands. It means that you know that no circumstances could arise which would be too much for God. And consequently, therefore, no circumstances will be too much for you since God is working in you and for you. There's a test that I want you to take this morning. It's a test that I'll be taking along with you that I've also been taking for myself. But you're going to have to put your imagination in overdrive to take this test. Pretend with me that you were one of the Israelites who had just crossed the Red Sea and you're on your way out of Egypt and you're on the Sinai Peninsula and you're wandering around there and the Sinai Peninsula is mainly um, several different deserts. And so you've been uh, out in these deserts. You're running low on water. And you come to this place, Rephidim. And you're expecting water to be there. And you get there. And there's no water. You, you, you could find this account in Exodus chapter 17. You don't need to turn there now. We won't be there long. But it looks like as you've come to Rephidim that you, your family, your livestock, are going to die of thirst. But God, as you were leaving Egypt, God, as you were crossing the Red Sea, God, as you you got to the other side of the Red Sea, continually told you, I will be with you. I will bless you. I will take care of you. So you have these promises, these repeated promises from God. But the reality of your circumstances is you have no water. And it looks like you, your loved ones, and your livestock might die of thirst. What would be your response? In your hearts, try and answer honestly. But before you answer, remember that you have sand in your hair that sand has blown into your ears, 
that you have grains of sand in your mouth. You can feel them crunch when you bite down. You can feel them rubbing, uh, these little hard grains of sand rubbing uh, in your gums. And your lips are dry, chapped, cracking. Your tongue and the back of your throat is dry. You're having enough. You're having a hard time generating enough spit to be able to talk comfortably or easily. And so I ask you, if you were one of those Israelites, having received God's promises, but faced with what looks like pretty certain death and certain thirst, how will you respond? Well, here's what the Israelites did. Here was their response. They quarreled with Moses. Exodus 17.3 says, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The Israelites failed the test. They failed it miserably. In fact, Moses cried out to the Lord and said, God, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Of course, God told Moses to go and strike a rock with his staff and that water would gush out of it for the people to drink. So Moses went and struck the rock. Water gushed out for the people to drink. And verse 7 says that Moses named the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So how did you do on the test? Well, let me ask this. Because it's easy to uh, curve your grade on the test when you're thinking about, in your imagination, putting yourself back several thousand years. So let me ask you and make it a little more practical. How do you handle difficult circumstances in your own life when they arise? Do you become paralyzed by fear? Do you fly off the handle and get angry at your circumstances and everyone around you? Do you throw yourself a big self-serving pity party? Or do you trust in the Lord? If God is truly in control of your life and He says that He is in control, He says that He is in complete control of your life and all your circumstances, if that is the case, then no matter how painful, no matter how unpleasant, all of your circumstances are a good gift from your Heavenly Father who loves His children. So there is no room for any other response other than your complete trust in the Lord. This is the foundation for Paul's contentedness here in verses 11 and 12 when he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
Paul would not be able to say this. He would not be able to believe this in his heart if God was not in control. If he did not know that God was in control and that God loved him. I want to teach you a little trick I learned from Jeremiah Burroughs in his book uh, entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs was a 17th century Puritan. In fact, he was uh, one of the men that sat on the Westminster Assembly and uh, helped write the Westminster Confession of Faith. And here's what he said in his little book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I've lost my copy. I found it online. It's very easy to find online if you want to read it. Um, It's kind of short, a couple of hundred pages. Um, Some parts are easy. Other parts are not. I ended up in Aiken, South Carolina, I ended up killing a reading group by suggesting that book because they said it was too hard and they stopped coming and the group fell apart. <laughs> it had been going for two years till I brought the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Um, but uh, it's, it's, you can find it online pretty easily. Anyway, here's what Jeremiah Burroughs said. He said, because God is in control of our lives, And He loves us. It means that our present circumstances are really God's blessings. God says we as His children are free to change our circumstances uh, as we entrust ourselves to God. But when our circumstances cannot be changed, then we are to find contentment through negation or through subtraction. Let me illustrate what he's trying to say. Let's say that your desire is to possess this this set of circumstances. This is what you want in your life. But this down here is the present circumstance you find yourself in. And you're not real happy about these circumstances and you'd like to change them. And God says, ask, seek, knock. Maybe God will change them. Uh, God gives you uh, the ability to change them as you rely on Him. But let's say that He says no, and your circumstances cannot be changed. Here is the measure of your discontent. Where your desires are and where your reality is, this whole area here is discontent. What Burroughs says is because God is in control and He loves us, and He is in control of your present circumstances, what you need to do is by negation, by subtraction, subtract your desires so that they are equal with your present circumstances because God's in control. And so you entrust yourself to God. Here's the Apostle Paul. What was his circumstance? He was in jail. Would Paul like to have been in jail? No. But what was the state of his heart. He was content. He subtracted his desires down to his present circumstance because God had placed him into jail. See that? Contentment through subtraction is what um, is what Burroughs calls this. And me illustrating up here may make it seem a little easier than it really is. This is very difficult. (laughs) Uh, For you to live this kind of lifestyle is to swim against the current. To swim against the current of your own selfish heart. Also to swim against the current 
of our entire culture because we live in a culture that is permeated by a spirit of discontent. Greed has destroyed gratitude. Getting has replaced uh, giving. But in spite of, the, of this difficulty, the rare jewel of Christian contentment can be yours in Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is even extra hard. This is the Christmas season. This is the height of the year where everybody's sitting down with their little list. What do I want to get for Christmas? And all the commercials are bombarding us and all the cool sales and everything else. And I'm telling you, in spite of that, God promises that you can be content. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, the Apostle Paul says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This verse has been misapplied to say that Christians can do all kinds of impossible things. But the context here clearly indicates that a Christ, what Paul's saying here is that a Christian can be content in any and every circumstance, in any and every situation. But here's the key. Second half of verse 13. Through Him who gives me strength, or Him through Him who strengthens me. The Him there is God. The Him there is Jesus. The key here is that Christ is at work in us. The key here is that Christ is for us. You know, I've raised four children and I've observed countless other small children. What do they do um, when something frightens them? Well, they run instinctively for their parents and they wrap their arms around their parents' legs. That should be our instinct when we face difficult circumstances. Flee to Christ. Press close to Him. Find shelter in Him. Here's the encouragement. Jesus doesn't wait around for us to take the first step. He doesn't wait around for us to seek Him before He seeks us. Psalm 121 verse 3 says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. God is working around the clock for His children. He doesn't take days off, nor does He take naps. Second Chronicles chapter 16 verse 9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to show His might in behalf of those whose, whose uh, heart is whole towards Him. God's out there seeking, how can I help my children? God is proactively uh, uh, looking out for His children in ways that He can bless them and help them. His eyes are scanning the world looking for those opportunities, looking for you and what your needs are. He knows your circumstances. He knows everything about your life. He knows the inmost thoughts of your heart. He's the Good Shepherd. He knows what you need. And He promises to take care of us. So my question to you as we conclude this sermon is, will you trust Him? Joy, peace, as we've been learning about uh, these past few weeks, and also contentment. 
will be your certain reward. And I want you to look at verse 19. This is going to be the exclamation point for this sermon. Because this is a promise that God says is yours in Jesus Christ. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that our contentment does not reside in our willpower or in some uh, stoic closing our eyes to the circumstances with which we are in, but rather our contentedness involves our eyes opening wide to the Lord Jesus and trusting in Him and taking His promises to our heart because He will never leave us or forsake us and He will give us all of His riches in glory according to His riches and glory. Help us to trust in You. We pray in His name. Amen.